0: Caring for ourself is not selfish. Um, taking care of ourselves is not selfish. Although often we feel guilty or we feel selfish when we step back and we do that. But, the, but it's the most powerful thing you can do for yourself is take care of yourself. And the first level of taking care of yourself is knowing yourself.
1: be our best selves and harness our greatest potential? How can we focus on what is right with us instead of what is wrong with us? My guest this week, Dr. Lynn Owens, helps us answer these very important questions on this episode. Lynn Owens has 39 years of teaching and research experience, including 36 in higher education and 25 years of providing counseling services to clients. Dr. Lynn Owens brings an extensive passion for making a difference in the lives of others. Lynn has served on the faculties of McDaniel College for three years, the University of Maryland for 18 years, and Montana State University for 15 years. Currently, Lynn continues to focus on understanding how to harness the strengths of a person's personality to maximize their performance. The overall result of this work suggests that the personality matters. By understanding a person's strength of personalities and the effects of stress on those strengths, Lynn is also applying previous research conducted over a 15-year period where she studied the ethic of care. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. I am so honored and excited to welcome Lynn Owens to The Spark. Thank you for being here with us, Lynn. Thanks, Stephanie, and thanks so much for inviting me. There's just so many places where you have just added value and added so much in in your career, this 40 years of teaching and research and 37 of those in higher education. Can can you tell our listeners just a little bit about that personal journey that's led you to where you are today?
0: My journey really started a very long time ago, um, 1974 when I found myself standing in a line in a registrar's office at the University of Maryland with a little pink slip of paper in my hand that was going to suggest and actually affirm that I was flunking out of college. And I got that, I, I thought it'd be better to uh, disenroll rather than get kicked out a week later, which would have happened. Um, and I remember that day having an enormous sense of shame and guilt. I was not the person that I'd been raised to be at that point. I had only moved about six blocks out of my home uh, into a sorority, had a heck of a good time uh, and yet didn't go to school, was making bad choices when I was in a bad relationship. So I just um, was sort of a train wreck during that period of time. Anyway, after I uh, made that decision and I had to then walk home and inform my parents and um, I knew I would break their hearts. I had said to my dad, who was also a teacher, I had said at seven that I was going to grow up and become like you, dad, a teacher. And now I'm going to have to go home and break his heart. So two things occurred to me while I was walking home. The first was that nobody knew so nobody really knew who I was, including me. I didn't know who I was anymore. I didn't recognize this person, but I didn't seem to be able to fix it or figure it out on my own. Nobody knew I was living a false front on my life, an inauthentic uh, front, that I would call it now. Um, I wasn't genuine, I wasn't transparent, I wasn't truthful, um, I was just lost. Yet nobody really knew that or knew what I was going through. The second thing, which was even more painful to me, and this is the one that sort of planted the seed, was that not only did nobody know, nobody cared. Nobody seemed to care enough to sit me down and say, you are screwing up. You're making bad decisions. We love you enough to tell you the truth. Nobody was noticing me. I felt invisible. Um, And particularly because I wanted to be a teacher, where it was more painful for me than my personal relationships was the fact that no professor, no lab assistant, no TA, nobody who was in a position of helping me in my education said, where have you been? We haven't seen you in weeks. Or you failed another exam. What is going on with you? I seemed to be completely invisible. So as I was walking down, I mean, it was a super painful, painfully slow walk because I just didn't want to walk in the door and tell my parents this. But the last thing I do remember was not only does nobody know and nobody care, I remember thinking to myself, if I ever get it together, if I ever go back to school, if I ever become a teacher, if I ever figure my life out, I don't ever want one of my students to feel like I feel right now, that nobody knows and nobody cares. And so although it took me a bit more time to get it together, go back to school, I did graduate with honors, I did go on to teach middle school for a few years and then into higher education, but always in the in, in my heart of being a teacher was to establish relationships with students so that they would feel like they mattered and that I cared about them. And for in my early career, I found it um, easy to establish relationships with students that are easy to like, Um, the ones that want to be there, that are eager, they have their hand raised all the time, and harder with those that were more challenging. That was just a matter of me maturing and becoming, understanding this more. Then when I went back to graduate school and became a university professor, um, this is what I wanted to study. This is what my, uh, my dissertation was about. It was about how do we become caring? How do we as teachers create those relationships through which kids feel like we care? And then it went on into understanding how do I take care of myself as a teacher so that I can take care of everybody else? And that work then has accumulated over a period of of years. And then on top of that work became understanding what makes people tick understanding strengths of personality because if we understand what makes you tick i now have a formula through which i can communicate with you inspire you encourage you teach you care for you so that you feel cared for and therefore we know you will learn so that's uh, a short version of a very long part of part of the story
1: there's so many powerful things about that story and really that being such a transformative moment in your life, that, that walk home and then how it's gone on then really, it sounds like to just inspire you and propel you to do all this work and all the, all the research that you've done. The tools I know that you use to understand people's personalities and maximize their performance. It's as you are saying that right now and sharing that right now, what I thought of was like uh, Gary Chapman's The Five Love Languages. Mm hmm. It's really about tuning in to who that other person is, not just how we give love, right? but what that other person needs to feel loved. And in your case with the students, to feel seen, to right. feel important, that they right. matter.
0: Yes. And I, I talk about it in terms of um, how do we understand others so that we can honor, appreciate, and respect them in the way that we communicate with them, lead them. Motivate them, um, parent them, you know, whatever it is. I talk about this personality and performance. How do we harness the gifts of who a person is? these strengths, these gifts, to maximize their performance in various roles, in various arenas in their life. So it could be the actress on the stage, it could be the teacher in front of the room, the coach in front of their, their team, the uh, physical therapist with their patient, it could be in our work roles, but it also just is, how can I do that as a as a sibling? How can I do that as a mom? How can I do that as a grandma? You know, how, how can I be my best self yet understand, appreciate, respect, and honor the strengths of those around me um, so that they
1: feel cared for. So there's, there's a lot of different levels to this, and, and I want to get into this, but before we do, I know that you spent two different significant chunks of time at two different universities and yeah. that you were at the University of Maryland where you had actually, you now I realize, gone to school. Right. Um, right. And you were back there as a professor for 18 years. Mm -hmm. Talk about what you were doing there at that time and then what motivated you to make the change.
0: So uh, it really was funny because I did end up back on this faculty, the very same faculty from which I had flunked out of so uh, many of them knew me as the kid who flunked out and now i'm back on the on the faculty and my beginning uh faculty positions were ones of instructor and lecturer and i ultimately became responsible for the teacher education program in our physical education major so any students that wanted to come in be a teacher in physical education or a coach I uh, saw them into that process, taught them for four years along with other faculty members, and then supervised their student teaching, and then they and then they left. And I absolutely loved that work um, because I also saw myself in so many of these students that wanted to be invisible, that were really struggling. Um, I call them in my research in one of the studies I did a long time ago and um, I call them my soft spots. I think all of us have soft spots of care. Many of us who are caring care about a lot of people or a lot of things, but we might be very vulnerable to a soft spot of care, Um, a particular person or people that are experienced, something that we relate to in some way. And I would see those students who were challenged, who weren't showing up to class, that were having difficulty, and my heart just burst for them um, because I was them and I didn't want them, again, to feel what I had felt, and I, I know I, uh, I cajoled them, I encouraged them, I gave them a kick in the butt if they needed it, um, to just make them understand you do matter. Um, I did that work for a long period of time, and I was experiencing some health issues along the way, particularly later on in my in my journey there. Um, and it became clear that it was time for a change. And, uh, one of the pieces of the care work is understanding what it means to be called into professions of care. So often people who are in ministry or in nursing or in medicine, in social work, in counseling, in teaching, in coaching, they, they will say, when you ask them, how did you get into this profession? They will say, well, I was called, I had a calling. So I've taught about what it means to have a calling. And one of the things I know about that is that sometimes we're called into a certain um, season of a career or season of purpose, and then that calling is diminished in preparation for the next calling. And that is exactly what happened in my time at tail end of my time at the University of Maryland. I felt sort of a diminishing in the call there and an opening for exploring whatever the next call would be, Uh, excuse me, which happened to be this call to leave there and go to Montana State University. My daughter was the first one to end up at Montana State University on a volleyball scholarship. I missed her desperately uh, and was traveling back and forth to see her on volleyball weekends, but also recognized the difference in the educational systems between a more rural environment of Bozeman, Montana and uh, a very, very urban environment of Baltimore or Washington or Prince George's County Schools, which is kind of in between those two, where I was doing a lot of my work. And so I thought it would be um, an exciting thing to put together uh, what I called the Rural Urban Teacher Initiative to connect some of these teachers between those urban schools and a more uh, rural setting. Um, what I have come to know since moving to Montana was that Bozeman is not considered rural, uh, but compared to Baltimore, Washington, it was rural. So that gave me a gave me cause and pause to be able to go there um, and work with some teachers there and, and coincidentally, visit with my daughter. Um, It was during one of those visits that I was invited, I was working with an elementary school teacher there, and I was invited to go to a conference uh, in Helena, which was their yearly state conference and education conference. And I went there um, not knowing anybody, uh, I went into a meeting, a panel discussion of issues in higher education I thought would be interesting. I didn't know anything about higher education in Montana. And I uh, sat down and uh, halfway through, a woman comes in and sits down right next to me. And uh, I recognized her. She was the department head at uh, in the Department of Health and Human Development at Montana State University. And that's where Becca was uh, going. Um, she was majoring in teacher education, interestingly enough, in that department. And I had met her the year before and she sat down, she looked at me. I was kind of annoyed. I was kind of embarrassed because it was in the middle of this, uh, of this presentation. Um, and she reached down into her bag and she took out a spiral notebook and she wrote a note. And these are, these are the kinds of things. When I talk about calling, there are signs and often we're invisible to those signs. We have our own, you know, we're trying, we we have our blinders on to whatever else and what other possibilities might be out there. But, um, This was clearly one of those moments, and I, at the time, had the blinders on, and she wrote a note, she tore it out of her spiral notebook, she wadded it up, and she passed it to me, and I was even further annoyed, and that was my first honest reaction was, oh my gosh, this woman is passing me a note, (laughs) and I opened it up, and I read it, this curiosity got the best of me, and it said, yesterday, I got permission to search for a tenure-track position in teacher education, would you apply? And for about 20 seconds, my brain just froze and all of the negatives came out. My blinders were so tightly on my uh, on that. I remember thinking, well, no, I can't apply. I have a career. I have to retire if we ever move. And, you know, I just built the dream house I spent twenty years planning. no, no, I can't. we just moved. no. And then all of a sudden it was just this amazing sense of peace that overcame me. I know, um, I, I have a very strong faith and I know it and knew it. No, at, at that exact moment that this is this is the good Lord saying, you know what? I am calling you, and here is a sign, and this is what. I want you to do. Um, The other interesting thing about this timing is that this was exactly a month after September 11th had happened. 9-11 had happened. Our children, one was in Montana, the other was in Colorado. It was terrifying to be on the East Coast at that time and so close to the Pentagon, New York, all of these things. And I had been praying for God to send those kids back to me and trying like I could tell God what to do. But he heard that prayer and he had another plan. And knowing that the good Lord goes before us in all things, as soon as I read this and got through that 20 seconds of just, you know, kind of, uh, I felt this sense of peace, knowing absolutely that this was the next calling in my life, and that's what happened Um, a year later. Uh, less than a year later, so this was October, it was in August that we moved to Montana. I'd been off with the deposition that spring, and um, you know, sort of the rest was history. Um, being at Montana State University allowed me to now take my work to the next level. And for a number of, for, for a few years, first few years there, I was trying to figure out like, what is that next level? I had done all this qualitative work, many research studies on care, how it happens, how we become that, what does it look like, how is it perceived, how do kids understand it? Um, I sort of had done all of that. And it was at that point, um, I was really kind of struggling to go, you know, what's next in terms of my own research? What do I need to know more of, about? And a good friend, uh, our paths crossed, his daughter also played volleyball at Montana State, was instrumental in Becca Meeting Ryan, actually, uh, set the two of them up. Anyway. So Phil Olson is his name, and uh, he, uh, he was using these tools in uh, working in HR departments in corporations around the world to understand personality, fit of personality to performance in hiring and team building, all that kind of thing. And I ignored Phil for two years and his requests uh, to, to, find, to take this instrument, to take this very simple survey. I had done all that work. I had done it uh, decades before, and I just never could answer the questions. And, there, and, I, and I'll, just, I'll just say this as an aside. There are tremendous tools that are out there that for what they were developed to do, they do it really, really well. So it's nothing against any of those other tools. It's simply they couldn't answer the question that I was also asking. Not just who are you, but how are you? So these the the who are you piece, many of these tools identify that our traits, our strengths, and different things. They put us in boxes and in whatever, and they say, here you go. And it's valuable. We learn a lot from that. But my questions is always, well, I might be this, but it's not working for me really well here. Or this person might be that, but they don't seem to be responding that way. So I needed something more concrete. I wanted something um, that was more uh, uh, quantitative, that was statistically driven. And, and I, I couldn't find those. And I put that work aside until this interaction with Phil Olson. And this was that tool. But because I was wired the way that I'm wired and super stubborn, uh, I said, I'm not gonna do this. I don't see my work connecting to this. So um, I finally took his tool. And it's a very simple five minute survey, as you know. And in an hour of him walking me through my results, I knew in that moment, it was again, again one of those moments we just feel like, the, oh, whoa. I just knew not only had my professional future been carved out using this tool, but also my personal life. It really affected both of those and it really impacted and helped me really understand both the questions I've always been trying to answer. Who am I? What are my strengths? Why are my strengths different than other people who might have similar strengths? And it's about this amplitude, how highly developed different traits are in different people. It's about these combinations of traits. It was not only that, but it also could answer the question, how are you? Not just who are you, but how is that working for you? How are you doing? This tool had the ability to look at not only the basic self, what we would say, this is who you are, but also the adapted self. The, the, the who I am feeling I need to be as a result of situations that I'm forced in or I'm choosing to work on myself in certain ways. And then what we find is we adapt. Sometimes those adaptations are small. They don't take a lot of energy for us to do that. But sometimes they're huge. We're forced into situations where we feel like a square peg in a round hole and it doesn't fit. It doesn't feel good. And it takes a ton of energy to do that. And what the research of the last 16 years has shown is that Uh, when that stress goes up, that energy, so much energy has to be expanded to be somebody that we're not. When that stress goes up, we hit a tipping point and our performance will go down. Our ability to harness this gift is compromised. We cannot be our best self. And we certainly cannot maximize our performance and harness these strengths
1: um, in these various arenas of our life. Well, let me ask you, Lynn, a couple things. Number one is can you, um, are you able to say the name of the tool? Sure. Yep. Because yep. I I, th- I think that would be important for people, for, first of all, to understand and know, you know, th- what the tool is, the name, and then how they might access it would be sure. important. And then I, I want to ask you what you learned about yourself. What did okay. you learn about yourself through taking <laughs> the test? But let's start with, let's start with the first question, which is really, you know, what is the tool's name? How can people utilize it? So, the, the name of the tool
0: is the ProScan, capital P R O, capital S C A N. It was developed by a company called Professional Dynametrics Programs, and it's out of uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado. They developed this um, 25, 30 years ago. It was in its infancy. A statistically driven tool. And so, this is what separates it from others. When someone takes this particular instrument and they submit it, it, their results are compared and contrasted to a database of over 5 million people now. This tool is in um, is uh, in different languages. I think we're up to about 24 languages now around the world. Um, so there is a normative database of over 5 million people. So when a person hits submit, their their, um, scores, what they submitted, is compared and contrasted to this entire database. It's statistically derived. So the reliability of this tool is 96%. It's incredibly high, which means if people were to take it again and take it again, and for what it measures, it has uh, almost perfect reliability. Um, There is a margin of error of plus or minus 2%, um, which is minimal. Um, I have done thousands of these uh, with my students, with uh, peop- my subjects in various research studies. And I've only had two that were not 100% accurate for that person. And in both of those instances, it was because the person that took it misread the directions. And on the oh. one to five scale scored it backwards. So of course it would be different than what they turned out. So we just took it again and then it was a, a bullseye again similar to most people's experiences that I've worked with when you, when we start walking through this results, and this was my experience when I read it, my first thought was, how in the world does it know this? How in the world, given the simplicity of the tool and how easy it is to take, and the, the quick turnaround response time, how in the world does it know all of this about me? So that was my first reaction, was, whoa. I will also tell you that Almost to a person that I have done uh, this work with, that is also their first reaction. It's a bullseye. And it's this sort of shock and awe of going, how does it know that? Um, There were things in my report that I knew to be true about myself, but I'd never spoken them out loud. Things like, you care about your appearance. That was in my report, which to me, I, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm going, but it it really shouldn't matter. But it's true. I do. Yeah. And and what my experience was, uh, was one of validation in these results reports. um, And there are pages and pages and pages of, of report. What we're focusing on is what's right with you. What's, what's your strength what's working for you, what's right for you, not what's wrong with us. Yeah. And some people are are reticent um, to take some of these tools and enter into this work because all their life, the world has told them what's wrong with them. People have told them and pointed out, this is what's wrong with you, this is what makes me crazy, you need to fix this, you need to change that. And what I say all the time is your personalities, your strengths of personality, that's a gift. That's a gift. And to be able to step into that gift and accept that gift for what it is. Sometimes we have to undo the narrative on our head. We have to undo it because we've heard so often, this is what's wrong with us. But this tool is working on what's right with you. And, and our work with people is what's right with you. And knowing that personality is a gift, we also know that behavior is a choice. So we, in order to maximize our performance and make great choices of behavior, we need to sit in this strength. We need to affirm and, and, and feel that sense of validation, and it will drive our behavior. Our behavior becomes very predictable. But the challenge is that when stress goes up, and this is what our research showed over and over and over and over, when stress goes up, our performance goes down. So why don't we always make great choices of behavior? Why aren't we always our best self? It's a function of stress. It's a function of feeling like we have to be somebody that we're not. And when that happens, we can't harness this gift. We make bad choices of behavior. And then it just sort of it, it can lead to this
1: downward spiral. Well, and that was one of the things that was really interesting to me because you so graciously had me take the test and then spent my goodness, we almost spent three hours together, I think, <laughs> going over it, which, which was so wonderful and so insightful. And one of the things that struck me so much about this test is that not only does it, like you were saying, just describing right now, tell you your strengths, but then the stress that gets in the way of where you want to be, how really how you're designed to be, where your energy levels are at, and then what you can do about it. You know, and and I have to share with you after we spoke, one of the things that mine showed is that I had a very high energy level and yet where my stress was showing was significantly less. My energy level was being drained in a few ways. And one of the things you had said to me is, you know, really what this is showing me is that you're you're getting ready to maybe crash to like get sick, to have something physically happen. Ironically, the next day, <laughs> I got this horrible sinus infection. Oh no, I'm not even kidding. And I was down. I mean, I was down for several days, and oh. it's been amazing that that the test picks that up so greatly. And just yesterday, after being on antibiotics now several days, i'm I'm feeling the surge come back. And I right. thought, that is so incredible. the accuracy of that test. Yeah. To pick that up, that I was really headed towards that where the things that I was needing is in order to be at that performance level, to to maximize the energy that I do possess was like you had said, rest, mm-hmm. eating well, you know, making sure that, you know, you and I both were very similar in that mm-hmm. taking naps every day, that that's one of the ways that we refuel ourselves because we're such high energy people, making sure that that we exercise and that we're putting our energy into you, you and I have a lot of different interests. Mm-hmm. So the, the value of this tool is so great. I, you know, I, I would have loved to have taken it maybe a couple of weeks before <laughs> that and maybe taken taking a little better care of myself. But I, I guess I really wanted to point out just, I mean, the incredible accuracy in those kind of particular levels.
0: Right. And it picks up this, this real time analysis, which is what you experience. Well, I have experienced it too, really saying not only here's your strengths, but here's these adaptations that you're feeling you need to make or you're choosing to make that are taking a lot of energy. And then we actually graphically see, as you suggested, we graphically see this energy draining, just like when you're driving your car and you see the fuel light, you know, the fuel gauge going down, then comes on the fuel light saying, pull over, get gas. We see the same thing graphically and then can explain it, interpret it. Um, by, by taking this survey, I do want to say we call it a survey, not a test.
1: Sorry. Yes.
0: Words have power and the word test for some people is anxiety for them. Um, this is simply a survey. So there's no, a, a test would presume a right and wrong answer. I love Here,
1: that.
0: Yeah. It's no right or wrong. There's just real I say it all the time. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's just real. Um, so that's just a matter of semantics that we're pretty, pretty careful about. I take this personally, and I've been doing this, using this tool for 16 years. I take it about twice a year. Um, My basic self at my age and my stage, I'm pretty much done. (laughs) This is as good as it gets. (laughs) Then our challenge becomes how do we take care of it? How do we protect it? How do we honor, appreciate, and respect who we are? But that basic self doesn't change. But the priority environment self, which is this adapted self, it changes all the time because life is changing all the time. And it's picking up these adaptations in various environments in our life that include work, but also includes our family, our friends, our finances, our health. So all of this is, is in there together. And often as we unpeel the onion of a person, I mix metaphors all the time. That's <laughs> great. But as we unpeel the onion, we're really, as we turn those pages, it's unpeeling this onion of who a person is. Sometimes people aren't even aware of what's stressing them until they read it, it prompts the, in the narrative, it will prompt uh, some thinking, maybe it's about this, maybe it's about this. We'll talk about those different environments and then bam, there it is. It's something, it may or may not have anything to do with work, um, it may have something to do with
1: health or family or, or finances that they're just not aware of. So well, it
0: is very predictive.
1: Well, and one of the gifts as well um, in taking that for me was when you talked about the intuitive versus logic. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way in which I make decisions. Again, you and I both very similar on this very intuitive scale. But the gift to me it was in yes, in number one, in knowing what my style was, but also in being able then to appreciate as we talked about other people's style. And somehow there all of a sudden there was room around that for me. To give like to all of a sudden the lights went on and now I'm like, oh my gosh, I can give my parents more leeway because the way they make decisions is very different than the way I do. And there doesn't, like you said, there doesn't have to be a right or wrong. It's just the way that it is. And the way they make decisions is get every single fact and then think about it long, 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 long. And for me, it was always like, okay, I've got the information. I feel it. (laughs) All right. Yep make it. You know, so, right. so instead of being irritated with their process or anxious, I think would be a better word around their process to be able to say, that's okay. That's what they need to do to get to where it feels good to them. Right. Exactly.
0: It, it, it really does in doing this work and working with so many people. And, and I certainly was guilty of this as, as many people are, we assume that everybody's like us. Yeah. We're fabulous. Right. <laughs> so everybody's like us, they're going to think like us act like us, be like us. Um, We may see those differences, we may try to understand them a little bit, but basically, um, particularly in stressful situations, it becomes really difficult to honor, appreciate, and respect the person across the table from us when we don't understand their strengths. And we simply want them to respond like we would respond when we're frustrated and we're done, we've just had it, this meeting has gone on and on and on. When when we start looking at um, couples, that's a whole nother thing. You know, uh, Bill and I uh, are very are wired very differently. That's part of the attraction. Opposites attract, yes. They do attract to the level of strengths of personality as well. We see the gift in the other that we don't see in ourselves, And that, that whole two shall become one thing. It's real. The challenge is that when he's stressed and I'm stressed, and we're both at that point of just losing it, we are done, it gets not only incredibly challenging to be your best self, my best self, it's impossible to appreciate him. (laughs) Of course. Because you just like, I want you to say what I would say. I want you to agree with me. I want you to solve the problem like I would solve it. And if the if the other person's in that same space as you are, there is we, we have to walk away from that because it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So I do honestly think that that's a huge, I mean, this is sort of a a sidebar here, but I do think that's a huge reason why divorce is as rampant as it is, because we don't really understand who's walking down the aisle to us, right? We don't, we love them, Yeah. we don't see down the road when stress comes up, we're now parents, we have mortgage, we have responsibility, we have work, we have all these things that we don't have when we're walking down the aisle to somebody else yet. Then uh, as those things uh, come on our, our plate, um, there may not be enough room to not only accommodate ourselves, but appreciate it and under- other people and what they're dealing with. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating work. I absolutely love it. Um, I've never done it with anybody who didn't say they wish they'd done it before. I wish I knew this before. I, I you know, or, or that are totally appreciative and get it.
1: Um, it's powerful work. Well, and I can see where it would be a powerful tool for couples. I love what you're saying. I, I, I seriously would love to adapt this and use this as a tool in couples therapy. I think it would be... Absolutely incredible because I think that's so much of the work we do is to try to, in my work with couples, is to move them away from who's right or wrong. Right. And that it's really, we do this thing about moving into this open hearted listening and trying to listen to understand, Mm -hmm. to listen, you know, not to say, oh, my rights, you know, my thing is right and yours are, you know, yours is wrong or you have to accept what I'm thinking, but just appreciate we're all looking out of a different lens and we're all wired differently and how important. That truly is to, to get it. If, if we want to really deeply, if our goal is to connect and not just to be right, that's the work. And so one of the things I want to make sure that, that we share with the audience is, is I think one of the powerful things too. I mean, this would be phenomenal in businesses for, for people to utilize with employees. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that we mentioned that you did this with all of your students. I did. Yeah.
0: I began doing this with my students almost immediately after the revelation of, of having it done to me, um, because I realized two things. As a teacher, as a professor in front of the room, I'd always known there's different learning styles, um, you know, there's emotional challenges, there's all these different you know, sort of educational frameworks around which we teach for effective teaching. But nobody had done any work or had really understood the differences in how students learn Uh, based on their strengths. And it was a huge aha moment to me to recognize I need to know the strengths of the students that are sitting in front of me. And so I would give it on the first day of class. Uh, Students would then, uh, we would spend another class going through uh, who they are, it didn't matter what I was teaching. Sometimes I was teaching a curriculum design class, other times I was teaching an applied sports psychology research class. Um, and then my baby, which uh, is a class I created, was called The Ethic of Care, where we taught all of this. But regardless of what I was teaching, it was, it was empowering to students to understand this is who they were. And to help them understand what I was gonna ask them to learn, the way I was gonna ask them to learn it, may or may not, bump up against how they are wired and programmed to learn. Um, It also informed that I needed to be, uh, I needed to be adjusting my teaching methods so that I'm reaching students of various strengths, not just the way I'm wired to teach, but the way they are wired to receive learning. And uh, so we would do this, I would profile them all, We'd walk through their reports, then I would take all of their reports, their individual pro scan reports, and I could dump them into a team scan. And I had these graphs of everybody's profile and it would sit on my desk and on the table while I'm teaching. I could look back at it. And then it became very predictable who was the kid that was going to ask the why question. They have a certain trait that has to know the why all the time. It would be predictable which students would be um, most comfortable in group work, working together. It would be predictable which students would just sit in the back of the room, never raise their hand, didn't mean they weren't learning. It, before I would have thought they're not engaged, they don't care, when in fact that's how they're wired to receive learning and and, and uh, to, to learn. So just fascinating stuff. Um, Most of my work, the last uh, particularly 10 years, most of my classes were senior level only. So you had to be upperclassmen, mostly seniors, to get into those classes. And student evaluations, whatever, many students said, of all the things they learned, that was the most important one, who they were knowing that those young people are still in a process of development. I mean, we're really not done until the mid to early thirties. And even for some people later than that, there's these adult milestones we need to hit. Every time we hit one of those living at home, living away, being in school, being out of school, not having a job, having a job, not having a spouse, having a spouse, not being a parent, being a parent, not having a mortgage, being a mortgage, all of those, or having a mortgage. (laughs) All of those are adult milestones, that many young people now go through in their 20s, early 30s. And every time we hit one of those, this is why we're still developing. Every time we hit one of those, our self bumps up against it and says, who do I have to be now? Who do I have to be now that I have a real job? Who do I have to be now that I'm independent? Who do I have to be now that i am got a mortgage, that I'm a parent, you know, that I have these adult responsibilities? <laughs> I, I laugh when I hear young people talk about, well, I'm I'm in the process of adulting. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you've heard it too, right? Oh, well, yeah. this is, that's what this is, learning how to be an adult. And this, who do I have to be now? I also like to phrase it as, who do I get to be now? Who do I get to be now? Mm. So that it's not so much of a negative stress, it's more of a positive stress. But yeah, we did that with all all of our students. I found it profoundly interesting and impactful as a teacher to understand this about my students so that I wasn't assuming they all learn like I learn. They, they all are like me, you know, and then judging those that were different than that. Yes. I, take that judgment hat off.
1: So powerful. I mean, what a game changer for your career and, and what a gift to your students, Lynn. I just absolutely love this. So let's talk a little bit about this class, the ethic of care.
0: I was doing all this research in care. And one of my frustrations in higher education is that so often we have to publish or perish. And when you do that, your work goes into some journal that maybe somebody might read sometime, somewhere, but it's not really making a difference and it's not really being applied. And so um, I was frustrated with that and uh, then uh, this class actually came to me in a dream. I woke up one morning and it just had all been realized in this dream. And basically what the what the class became was, I felt it was that the legacy I could leave with this work was to empower students to really learn about what it means to be caring become caring, create caring relationships through which other people feel like you care, and then how do you take care of yourself so that you can take care of everybody else? So that was abundantly clear. Leave that legacy. How to do it? Create a class. What kind of a class? Well, a class like this doesn't exist. So I looked all around, and I was fairly familiar with some work that was done, Leo Biscaglia's work back in the 70s, right? Uh, All of that stuff, good stuff, but this particular class didn't exist. So I made it up, and again, in the dream. Uh, Wrote a syllabus in a day. Um, It became real important though that in this class we were going to embed theory for sure. We were going to embed strategies because we knew a lot about those strategies, how to create those kind of relationships, sort of a recipe, if you will. That this work of understanding uh, strengths of personality was going to be embedded in there because it was super important to understand that. Um, But it also was really important to me that the students would not only learn this stuff, that but that they would live what they learned. So we made this class a, and I, I say this to my students all the time, I always say we made this class. I think of myself in the plural. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> I, sorry, uh, I created it so that it became a service learning class and it met the requirements of service learning at, uh, at our university, which was 40 hours of service. So the requirement, and this is the one that blew the students out of the water and terrified them on the first day of class, but the requirement was that they were to work at creating a caring relationship with someone that they do not know on the first day of class. So I'll, I'll, when I said it during class, I would say a caring relationship with somebody, I could see them going, yeah, I, I, I got a friend, I got a, I got a roommate, I got a boyfriend, you know, we could, we could do that. But then when I would say that you do not know today, and they would, like, deer in the <laughs> no. Yeah, and But it was important because they needed to understand that entry level, that first connection with somebody. How do you do that? Because it's in that first moment that it either is going to work or it's not going to work, that entering in, that first impression. So we partnered with some agencies in uh, the Gallatin Valley where we were, some nursing homes, uh, a therapeutic recreation center, cancer care community, some other places that needed people to come in and care and the requirement was for students to go in, spend three hours a week total. And that included how long it took you to get there, spending time with that person, and then journaling about it. So it wasn't just putting in the time, reflection is huge in understanding how to be caring and learning about yourself. And so the reflections were, and when they would spend this time every week and they would journal, what did you learn? What did you learn about them? What did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about the context that you're finding them in whether it was a nursing home or simply uh, you know a ball field where you were coaching a kid you know what did you learn about the context and then what did you learn about this ethic of care and as the semester went on they wrote these journals every week I read them gave them feedback on them and then uh we wove in and i told them it was important there's a language to this caring thing there's a uh there's a vocabulary if you will and i needed to see that woven deeper and deeper into the reflections um, so that was they did that and that was super powerful and and while the requirement was only for one semester while they were in there many of those students chose to continue that relationship Um, afterwards and I get emails all the time from students that are still years later still going to visit that person in the nursing home or still connected to the to whoever their partner was in the community I also did change it after about the first uh, couple of years of doing this because I know students have lives and so they're working they're going to school being able to fit into um, a time frame that was going to work in a structured environment was going to be challenging so I said you can do that or start a conversation with, or begin a relationship with somebody who's, you simply, you're crossing their path when you go to work out every day in the gym. They come alone, you come alone, start a conversation. Or you see a kid sitting in class by themselves, another class, go sit with them. Or at uh, wherever you are working, there's somebody there that you really don't know. That's okay. You can do that. And so that opened it up to their creativity. I trusted that they would do that, and they did.
1: Programming on NoCo.fm is supported by its listeners and by Audible.com. With
0: over 180,000 titles to choose from, Audible.com allows you to listen to an immense library of books for every taste on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, tablet, or computer. Audible.com has a special offer for listeners which includes a free audiobook of your choice and a 30-day free trial. Learn more and get your free audiobook now at noco.fm audible. know that um, this shift away, this retirement, as you, if you will, is not the end at all. I think a lot of people think, well, you're retired, you're going to play golf all the time, you're going to watch soaps, you're going to read, you know. No, it's it to me, it's energizing. It's now like, what is the next season of my life? Uh, doing this work like I did with you um, is definitely the next season of my life. Um, connecting with my daughter, partnering with her in some endeavors next season of our life. Um, Where we live now, we'll be partnering with my son and his wife who are also moving to the area. And we're gonna be running our our place here in Garden Valley as a venue, an event venue, retreat venue, weddings, um, reunions, those kinds of things. So just being able to to partner in different ways with both family members, but also in the community. um, And then uh, professionally, go to that next level of, of uh, presenting and teaching people about this and working with people. Um, I have, I, I, It's just amazing to me. I, I have no words. It's just crazy.
1: Well, it's just been amazing to, to hear your journey. And I know I, I was just trying to think of something that you had said to me during our last conversation that really struck me about heeding the call even oh. when other people might not know what you're doing. And it might not make sense to everyone else, but, but to be able to really be open to listening and maybe even sometimes quieting yourself so Mm -hmm. that you're hearing that Mm -hmm. and, and that you really, I mean, it's been so powerful in your life. I've had those experiences in my own life. Um, so, so I absolutely resonate with what you're saying when all of a sudden it's just, all, you know, I'm going to pay attention to this, whether it looks crazy to everybody else, and then all the doors open. I think what, what we were talking about is transitions. So uh,
0: in, when people find themselves in transition, they're going from point A to point B, usually just want to get there as fast as possible. Because in the transition is the unknown. Um, what I encourage people to do is sit in the unknown, sit in the transition in stillness. Whether uh, ask for revelation, ask for discernment, ask for what is it that I'm supposed to know that I don't know yet and sit still in that space. I'm not a person that sits still well, so I have to continually remind myself to do that. But what what I think happens and what I encourage is, yeah, this idea of the next thing that's supposed to be revealed to you will be revealed in these moments and it doesn't have to make sense to anybody else because there's never been another you. There will never be another you. There's only one. And so your vision or your, your path, your journey is spe- specifically carved out for you. And when other people don't understand it, it's because it's not, it, it, it wasn't their vision. It's not their journey. They don't understand it because it doesn't make sense to them, but it doesn't have to. And often if we're trying to listen to those voices and those people are important to us, we give them our power. We give our power away to these people to make for, for the decisions that we need to be making about how it's being revealed to us in those quiet times. I know without a
1: shadow of a doubt, this, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Nobody else has to understand it. That's powerful stuff. And And I think such an important message for people to hear about how important it is to really listen to that inner guidance. yeah, and and to be in touch with that, that actually is. it's it's paying attention to our lives mm-hmm. and honoring our lives and the gifts that we've been given, and that you I love how you said that. Nobody else can live our lives for us. Mm-hmm. And we each have a specific and unique calling. No matter what it is, it's going to be in a different realm for everyone. And so no one can dictate that for you. And the book is called Catch and Release, Becoming a Teacher Who Changes Lives. And if you could just, if we can kind of end with just tell me a little bit about just the concept of of that book.
0: I'm a co-author on this book with two other amazing people. Uh, Dr. Greg Dale is at Duke University. And then uh, Mark Thomas is a award-winning high school principal in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And we put our heads together. Um, we met at Mark's high school two years, um, two and a half years ago now, October two years ago. And... We knew we wanted to write a book about teachers. We are teachers. We love teachers. We love teaching. But we also know that the journey to becoming a teacher and sticking in the trenches over the course of a career um, is hard. It's very, very hard. So we wanted to write something for teachers. We just didn't know what kind of a book we were writing. In my mind, as I'm flying to Grand Rapids, Michigan to meet for two days in this high school, I was thinking it's a textbook, you know. I didn't know what kind of a textbook, but it would be a textbook. And that that felt limiting to me because it was only going to be for students who were studying to become teachers, not those that were actually in the trenches. Well, maybe it's a motivational book. Maybe it's a how-to book. Maybe it's that kind of a book. So for two days, we sat around in a conference room, and we plastered white paper all around the, the room, and we kept we just brainstormed. It was a huge brain dump. And we we're thinking about all these things that teachers have to deal with, put up with, they have the opportunity to do, why they go into it, what are their struggles. And so we kept putting things up. For each topic that came up, didn't matter what the topic was, um, and these things were just flying around, uh, one of us would launch into a story Just it just seemed the natural flow of our conversation all day was they we would talk about, you know, challenging kids. And then one of us would bring up, oh, I remember so and so my third year of teaching and I I did this and it was really a bad thing to do as a teacher. But I didn't know what else to do. You know, there'd be stories about this stuff or teachers that we had good and bad, those that impacted us um, in various ways. And so. Um, we spent two days just telling stories. And you know, we and then we'd go, Well, but what kind of book are we writing? And we didn't know. So it was the end of the second day, and uh we all had a plane to catch and we were out to dinner and we're sitting around and we're still telling stories. And now we're telling stories about the story of us trying to write this book and we are we're going away and we don't know what what we're writing, and all of a sudden I just said You know, all we've been doing for two days really is telling stories, lived stories of teachers' lives. Let's write a story. And uh, so then, you know, we had a lot of conversation around that. Well, who who are our characters and what are we going to do? But that's what we ended up doing. So we wrote a story, and it's the story of Nathan, who is, or Nathaniel, who is a master teacher, 30 years into teaching, high school English teacher in his last year of teaching, who uh, wins Texas Teacher of the Year. One of our authors is from Texas, so we had to weave that in there. Uh, And in the story, Nathan uh, mentors a first-year teacher, Megan. And this is the story of the conversations that they have um, while they go fishing on a lake on Saturdays in in Texas, they both have a passion for fishing. So the metaphor of catch and release is exactly what we do with students. It's exactly what we do with colleagues. Um, we catch them and then we release them. But we've got to catch them. We've got to get them into the palm of our hand for them to learn. And that so so while it is a story, there's a lot of. Uh, theory in there. There's a lot of method in there. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of understanding stories of other teachers in there. We 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 uh, we we had a ton of fun writing it. It was probably the most fun I ever had writing. Um, and then we would edit each other's work. We would each take a chunk. We didn't even know where the story arc was going. Uh, we had no idea. But about every uh, ten days to two weeks, we'd do a, a call um, like this, and it would be two or three hours long. We'd reread the pages, we'd give each other feedback, we'd figure out where is it going next or what should we be writing next, and uh, that's how we wrote the book. And um, it, it basically is the story of becoming a teacher. There is a process, um, and it lasts. We I'm still becoming one. You know, it never ends for teachers. Um, So we wove in not only what it is like to be a teacher in, in in schools doing your work, but also what does it mean to be a teacher as a spouse? you know, to, to be in relationship. We think teachers don't have lives. We wove some life into the story as well. So that's how we created it. Um, I will tell you, we, the three of us have not been back together since that day two and a half years ago. We've talked with one another, we've texted one another, we have not been back together, but we would love to begin to do, um, and actually I am beginning to do some workshops and whatnot in service training with, with teachers in schools. We'd love to be able to do all that together.
1: Well, and I love that you made the comparison. It's like A River Runs Through It meets Tuesdays with Maury. Right. It's kind of that. Yeah. (laughs) Wonderful. What a great format, you know, to bring that to teachers and to bring that to to people that actually aren't even in education. It sounds like it would actually be a book that would really benefit and other people would enjoy. I think so, too, because everybody's had a teacher
0: um, and teaching is really leading leadership. Um, you're, you're the leader in front of the class. You're the leader in that space. And for your students to learn, they have to follow. So leadership and followership all weaves through that. And these stages of becoming, um, what do they look like? What do they feel like? What do you go through? Um, you know, are you nose above water just trying to survive? Are you adrift? And I've been doing this a long time and I'm just floating here. I'm not really sure. Um, are you full speed ahead and just in the zone and everything is, you know, you're, you are significantly making a difference. Um, are you done? You know, so we, we follow that arc of significance all through the book. Uh, and it's
1: really about making a difference. How do you make a difference? Well, Lynn, you obviously have made huge differences in people's lives, and just throughout your own journey, it's just been such an inspiring journey um, where you've continued to just grow and change and heed the call. And then your gifts have then, and the things that you you've learned through your research have benefited so many thousands of people. Thank what, you. What a gift. And, and it has definitely benefited me. I have, I have so deeply appreciated our conversations. And it truly has been such an honor to be able to meet with you and get to know you and
0: oh, thank share you. this time. I think one question I neglected to answer was how can people um, learn more about this work and uh, take the ProScan or something like that? Um, they can email me. Um, I'm happy to provide that um to people and stay in touch with people. I have a website, it's actually being reworked right now. Um, but if they email at Lynn L Y N N at
1: Owens.com, they can I will respond. So anyone can take the pro scan and get a hold yep. of you to do so. They sure can. What a gift. And and then they will get back through their email like a twenty-five page report.
0: Exactly. Exactly. They will get that back. And then usually the next step is typical, uh, similar to yours, is that we would have a conversation, um, where uh, a consultation, where I can walk them through what it
1: says about them and what it means and how to think about it. Thank you, Lynn, so much. Thank Thank you you for your gifts. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much. It's
0: been a joy. It's been an absolute joy.
1: Our personal journeys don't always end up the way we think they will. When Lynn got kicked out of school, it changed the course of her life. You know, we all get lost at certain times and we have to learn how to reinvent ourselves, listen to our own hearts and forge our own paths. No one else can live our lives for us and we have to trust ourselves and not let others' ideas or opinions define us. It's so important that we focus on what is right with us rather than what is wrong. It's a principle in physics that what we focus on expands. So instead of listening to the critical voice in our heads, we can move into a place where we focus on our greatest strengths and perform at our highest level. When we take time to listen to our own inner guidance, it will lead us to the next greatest chapter of our lives and one that allows our greatest gifts to shine. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain, and podcast episodes are released the same day. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NoCo Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James.